White houses. Once you understand the lost situation of the leaf dragged on a slow stream, snagged by roots unhooking from the bank, and that the limit to the sky is a rough red earth, and the limit to earth is its own rising. Once you understand that the lifting wind lifts the thorns easier than the fruit, fells the fruit to the dark sob of ground beyond the reach of bird or hand. Once you build your white house on the highest hill, only to find this makes it closer to storms and the ghosts of others who failed this land. Once you understand why the glass breaks in the dishpan, shaving a flap of skin above your thumb, so the suds bloom red as trillium in a forest where no one has been. Once you stop looking for ways the glass should not break, thorns should not prick, the house not shudder against the wind, then the bright shards will fall like rain on the parched riverbed, then the black thread will stitch your skin back to rags stretched over a loom of bones. And when the yard blooms its flat offering of violet and clover, you can cut them down without fearing they're your own heart shorn to the root. You can wander out on the battered streets at night alone as a god, listening to the stopped hiss of hydrants and alleys choked with weeds, missing who you were when you believed in a world of consequence and white houses when you needed to be told you mattered. I wrote this the first time I really left Vermont for a long time. I mean, I went overseas a few times in college and after college, but I moved to North Carolina and knew I was kind of gonna leave Vermont for a while. This isn't a poem about Vermont, but I think it's about understanding loss and understanding one's origins differently from being away from them and all these things of the leaf and the roots and the sky and the fruit and the bird. I mean, those are everywhere, but for me, they were also trillium and clover and so on were all things from, you know, it was a recitation of these landscapes that I had left. And I think there were landscapes of understanding that I also left behind it's a kind of a coming-of-age poem, like all coming-of-age moments full of longing. Those old certainties, they're gone. This is Maria Hummel. She's an assistant professor in the English department at the University of Vermont who specializes in creative writing. She's also the author of the poetry collection House and Fire and two novels titled Motherland and Wilderness Run. Her work has appeared in Narrative, The Sun, The New York Times, The New England Review, and many other publications. Maria was also my professor for an advanced poetry writing course at the University of Vermont last spring. I learned a lot about my own poetic voice while in her class. I really admire her and look up to her as a writer. I was in late high school or early college, and I wrote this poem. This was back when there were word processors instead of computers. So you basically like type something and then you printed it immediately because it was hard to actually save files. 
And so I left it on the word processor and it was this poem about my grandmother. And it started with this line, she walks so carefully now, and then ended with that line, she walks so carefully now. And it was really just, you know, the same revelation that young people have, that the person that they knew as a child is aging to the point that they're no longer the same as they were. And that that frailty is something you notice for the first time. My mom read it, and I don't think I had shown her anything that I had ever written, or not in a while. And she was very moved by it, even though I had the same line at the beginning and the same line at the end. What surprised me was how much I traveled in between. That feeling of being carried by writing a poem was addictive. It made me want to do more because I felt both the surprise of the making and then also the surprise of having it connect with somebody. Poetry did carry me and I followed it. Take this scarlet tanager maple. You can't see it, hear it, sap pooling in the cool, neglected months, mating with its dull, yellow-brown, species-wide female. These scenes undisclosed, like the withering of animal desire, like a child's voice before language secures it, like a fist of demurring flowers. Look at this ragged azalea, I am saying to a child, this amaranth so pink and visible, but not the same pink. The poem starts with a color, this scarlet tanager, which is a particular bird, but also we were living in New England at that time, and so the maple leaves turned scarlet at that time of year. All of these things that we add on to what we see was really interesting to me when you're learning language or when you're learning to look at the world. It's not just about naming objects or nouns, but learning to describe them or think about what their qualities are. This poem is partly exploring that, but also exploring the unfixedness of those qualities, how they are just part of our system of language and we can shift them around and reapply them to other things. The scarlet in that first part of the line can apply to both the bird and the tree. The precariousness of language and as much as we want it to capture and to fix the material world, it it always sort of rides on top of it and doesn't ever quite account for the thing. This is Jillian Osborne. Jillian is a writer and educator who lives in California. She is the co-editor of a collection of critical essays on modern and contemporary eco-poetics. She also teaches for the Harvard Extension School and the Bard College Language and Thinking Program. I live in California now, but I grew up in the Northeast in upstate New York. I started being interested in poetry when I was a teenager. I had a dad who had lots of poetry books around and gave them to me. And then one really amazing teacher in high school who really foregrounded poetry in her teaching and made time to meet with me and talk about poems. I should say that Emily Dickinson is just an incredibly important poet. She was someone I first had read in high school but didn't really love then and then really fell in love with in college. She informs a lot of my thinking about about poetry and science. 
there's a canon in a way of who counts as nature writers in American literature, and a lot of them write in prose, right? It's Thoreau and John Muir, and it's a lot of these white men who go to the mountains or the woods. And there was kind of an understanding too that if you were going to write about the natural world, you should write about it in prose because that is the closest to scientific approximations of the world. There's a way in which certain poets like Dickinson, who's so compressed and so unprosaic, <laughs> just were not considered writers of the environment for a long time. I think there's a bunch of poets who are interested in the poem as an environment itself, a space of practice and performance. How can a poem translate what it feels like to be in a body or what another body, like a bird's body, looks like? There's different kinds of nature poetry for me. There's the sort of, I am having a certain nature experience and I'm going to invite you into it and then it's going to expand outward from there, that sort of lyric moment nature experience. I like having the humans somewhere in the mix just because it feels honest to me and also because I think we have to be human to take action at a human scale. Some people would be less comfortable with them because they think they feel like it's trespassing when you try to humanize or find in nature something that's so allegorical for the human, then you diminish, you know, all the complexity of nature. There's this poem by Galway Cannell called The Bear, in which this speaker figure kind of hunts the bear and then basically becomes the bear at the end. One. In late winter, I sometimes glimpse bits of steam coming up from some fault in the old snow and bend close and see it is lung-colored and put down my nose and know the chilly, enduring odor of bear. Two, I take a wolf's rib and whittle it sharp at both ends and coil it up and freeze it in blubber and place it out on the fairway of the bears. And when it has vanished, I move out over the bear tracks, roaming in circles until I come to some first tentative dark splash on the earth. And I set out, running, following the splashes, of blood wandering over the world. At the cut, gashed resting places, I stop and rest. At the crawl marks where he lay out on his belly to overpass some stretch of bocce ice, I lie out, dragging myself forward with bare knives in my fists. Three. On the third night, I begin to starve. At nightfall, I bend down, as I knew I would, at a turd sopped in blood, and hesitate, and pick it up, and thrust it in my mouth, and gnash it down, and rise, and go on running. Four. On the seventh day, 
Living by now on bare blood alone, I can see his upturned carcass far out ahead. A scraggled, steamy hulk. The heavy fur riffling in the wind. I come up to him and stare at the narrow-spaced, petty eyes. The dismayed face laid back on the shoulder, the nostrils flared, catching perhaps the first taint of me as he died. I hack a ravine in his thigh and eat and drink and tear him down his whole length and open him and climb in and close him up after me against the wind and sleep. That was an excerpt from Galway Kennell's poem, The Bear. There was something about that transformation that it, it really hit me harder than I think the sort of lyric experience, lyric moment poems, because this gets down to probably my Catholic roots, which are, um, you know, the root of, of Catholicism is this transubstantiation where you're reading the body and blood of Christ. Even though I'm not a practicing Catholic anymore, that sort of mystical sense of relationship with things is what really gets to me. I'm, I'm all for those kind of poems. The scientist part of me, I'm not a, actively a scientist, but I did study it quite a bit in college. Makes me feel like, oh, I shouldn't love that stuff, but I really do. There's a whole bunch of more contemporary poets who are really interested in documenting environmental damage, the history and the ravages of landscape and letting in some of that into the space of their poems. Those poems are more about the epistemological problems of looking at the natural world, coming to understand the natural world. It's not so much about foregrounding emotional experience or epiphany or insight or even welcoming in a reader necessarily. I see Dickinson in that vein too. A.R. Ammons is another person I think of who's very different from Mary Oliver, right? Or Marion Moore as an earlier poet who I think is really interested in science. You know, when you read a poem, you're entering sometimes a thought process, sometimes an experience, sometimes an emotional state of a writer, and you're inhabiting it because it's, it's both an experience of time and an experience of consciousness and, and of language. It's, it's something that we can be part of. I, I feel like science in a lot of ways is secondhand, like somebody gives you their discovery. I always think of science as, you know, having empirical you know, the need to like prove something that is visible or tangible. And poetry really goes into a lot of what feels intangible. They're both investigations of a sort. Poetry necessarily foregrounds language and the role of language in those investigations. Whereas I think if you're a good scientist, you're trying to evacuate your language of particularity as much as possible you really are trying to make language transparent. Sometimes somebody looking at something that seems very small or like unimportant then changes, you know, our whole understanding of, of the fabric of an ecosystem. 
looking at something that just seems like a very small moment, but then it makes you understand a relationship remarkably differently. Poetry allows us to slow down and occupy the contradictions and the confusions and the possibilities and the feeling and the embodiedness of actually being in that space of investigation and and inquiry. The wonder, even just the question, you know, that question that you frame as a poet or as a scientist is guided by, by what you wonder about. And that question dictates almost everything about how you're going to go about answering it or trying to find the, the deeper understanding of it. I think the question comes out of the imaginative process in both cases. There's actually something about language. And maybe it's because things like anthropomorphization, like actually our ability to imagine ourselves into the experience of another creature or just to document the emotional responses that a human has when actually confronted face-to-face with loss of life is really powerful. Poetry can describe beautifully, powerfully, disturbingly. Poetry can wield language in ways that have effects. There's nothing quite like it for putting you into someone else's psyche. We have to have a feeling of connectedness, I think, globally in order to beat some of the problems or at least try to manage some of the problems that exist right now. We can't be so siloed. You know, we have to find ways to, to be together on things. And so I, I, I do f- have hope that poetry is one of those things that, that can connect people. I think there is also this thing that we haven't quite touched on with science and poetry that other, in other times in human history, people have contended with the exact same questions we have in really different ways. You know, our understanding of medicine, really different, you know, in the 15th century or something. And, and same with, um, I think, our understanding of, of hu- humans' place in the cosmos and our understanding of life and death and everything. It's like, these are all the same questions we've been dealing with for millennia. Here we are like uh, mites on a plum. And uh, the plum is this little planet and it goes around an insignificant local star, the sun. And that star is on the, on the obscure outskirts of an ordinary galaxy, the Milky Way, which contains 400 billion other stars. And this galaxy is just one of something like 100 billion other galaxies that make up the universe. So the idea that we are central, that we are the reason there is a universe, is pathetic. We still are battling, at least in the United States, the conceit that humans are separate from the rest of nature, that uh, an unbridgeable gap separates humans from the other plants and animals. I am nothing. Lying in a sweater of silt and moss, my fingers sighing into soil as I watch be Roombas and lullaby sky build my solitude to, to, to. 
I am losing my mind with each chipmunk call, lying between birch and brook. I lie beneath crows that know that one day I will die. Body silt, mind moss. But I don't cry for my disintegration. I cry for damp socks, mud-traced palm maps, the tickle of a beetle traversing my sleeve. The chantrell voices I can't hear. Leaves settle and my heart releases a beat that rises, pulsating each puddle, stitching me to a mycelial web, spider weave and dew. I am losing my mind. I am held. I am everything. That piece you just heard, entitled I Am Nothing, was a poem that I wrote for Maria's poetry class. The poem grapples with the mixed emotions that accompany a feeling of insignificance in the face of nature and the cosmos more broadly. For me, feeling insignificant is simultaneously troubling and beautiful. In other words, my life doesn't matter in the grand scheme of the cosmos, and therefore I can live it more freely. You know, I think of the classic Mary Oliver poem that everybody knows, you know, who made the world, who made the swan and the black bear, who made the grass. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean, the one who has flung herself out of the grass, the one who is eating sugar out of my hand, who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields which is what I've been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? That was Mary Oliver's famous poem, a summer day. It's a direct address to the listener, and I do think that's partly why her poems have that appeal, <laughs> very strong appeal to readers. I mean, she's literally speaking to us. The general questions at the beginning, they obviously have this religious connotation, 
who made the world. And suddenly you're gone from like the big questions down to this grasshopper eating sugar out of your hand and you're with her. She has this scientific attention to the grasshopper, this particular one, this particular encounter, and her description of it is very precise. Or with the speaker in that moment with this tiny thing, and then you blow back out again in the poem, but but for that moment you you are inhabiting that experience. I think that's very moving and grounding. Poetry has its roots in an oral tradition. Poetry being a spoken form continues to be hugely important in our culture through things like spoken word or hip hop. Traditional schooling and in public culture in this country into the 20th century, people were memorizing poems, reciting them, and the idea that that important piece of poetry was saying it out loud, saying it in public, saying it with others. This art, I think, is one that connects people. It's so portable. It's so immediate. And yet, sometimes it's lost in the conversation. Music merged to kind of take that place. I don't want to say music is easier than poetry because that sounds dismissive. But I think it's something that has an immediate, even more immediacy and it has that emotional hook in the music as well as the writing. And so people gravitate towards it, whereas they feel like poetry is that thing they study in school, therefore it's hard, and therefore it's not for them. It's like work. There's something about those poems that you read when you're younger, I mean, through adolescence. If you do read poems then, if you encounter them then, your brain is just, you know, you're still like this sponge, you're absorbing so many things, and those poems can really, really stay with you the books that I read of poetry when I was younger, it's almost like I know them by heart, even though I don't actually. But if I were to pick up Sylvia Plath's Ariel or Rita Dev's Mother Love was another book I read over and over again as a teenager. Like, I just loved those poems so much. They were so alive for me. Poetry at its very origins was this oral thing, this, you know, thing you carried in, in yourself. You would memorize it and you would hold it and you would recite it for people and We've lost that a little bit. My dad was German born and on his deathbed, you know, in the last couple days of his life, he had stopped speaking much and he had had dementia. He remembered things, it wasn't Alzheimer's, but it was sometimes in and out with sort of short-term memory and stuff. And I had memorized this very short poem by Goethe, which is a nature poem, a long time ago. I'll give it to you in German and then in English. Über allen Gipfeln ist Ruh, über allen Wipfeln spürst du kaum einen Hausch. Die Vögelein schweigen im Walde, warte nur balde, ruhest du auch. Which is, um, over all the hilltops is peace, over all the treetops you hear, Hardly a breath. Wait, soon you too will have peace. And this was a poem that Goethe wrote as a young man um, and carved, like he was hiking and he like carved it into the like wall of this shed, you know, up in the mountains somewhere. There's this anecdotal story of him coming back to it as an old man and finding it still there, like carved into the shed and bursting into tears. 
But anyway, I, I was starting to recite it to my dad in German. I don't think I had ever told him I had memorized the poem. I didn't even know if he knew it. I got to the part over the, all the treetops, you will hear hardly a breath. And then I couldn't go on because I was just really overcome with emotion. And then he said the next words in German. He said, Warte, Norbalde, which is wait soon. And I was like, how did you, I didn't even know you knew this poem, you know, but he answered it out of like near death, basically. And that's how deeply it was inside him. Poetry, it doesn't go, like it lodges just the way music does, I think, and it stays in there. Hearing someone else's voice or reciting it or hearing it in your head is, is such a short circuit to empathy. And I do really believe in that power of it. I think quarantine has brought out the contemplative in people in a different way more isolation, more alone time, or more time just with a few people. There's a chance there, I think, for reaching people in a way that they were hurtling from place to place, and now they're not. And that's really when poetry was at its probably most influential, was, was during those times in human history. So let's hope for a renaissance. It's exciting to think about poetry as a space where we can imagine beyond ourselves and make space for the world. It's a really important tool for just reflecting on what and who we are as a species and where we've been in terms of our treatment of the natural world, too. I do think it'd be a really interesting project. There's all these online challenges of various sorts, like read, you know, the Sealy Challenge, like read a book of poems every day of September. But I think it'd be a really interesting challenge to have people just read aloud one poem a day for a month, you know, like find one poem, read it aloud, and that's it. Like you don't have to do anything else. Try to take a moment each week to find a poem and read it out loud to yourself. It doesn't necessarily have to be an eco-poem. What would it do to your psyche to just spend that time doing that? It might be really healing. Here is my pick this week, Characteristics of Life by Camille Dungy. A fifth of animals without backbones could be at risk of extinction, say scientists. BBC Nature News. Ask me if I speak for the snail, and I will tell you I speak for the snail. Speak of underneathness and the welcome of mosses, of life that springs up, little lives that pull back and wait for a moment. I speak for the damselfly, water skeet, mollusk, the caterpillar, the beetle, the spider, the ant. I speak from the time before spinelessness was frowned upon. Ask me if I speak for the moon jelly. I will tell you one thing today and another tomorrow, and I will be as consistent as anything alive on this earth. I move as the currents move with the breezes. What part of your nature drives you? You in your cubicle ought to understand me. I filter and filter and filter all day. Ask me if I speak for the Nautilus, and I will be silent as the Nautilus shell on a shelf. 
I can be beautiful and useless, if that's all you know to ask me. Ask me what I know of longing, and I will speak distances between meadows of night-blooming flowers. I will speak the impossible hope of the firefly. You with the candle, burning, and only one chair at your table, must understand such wordless desire. To say it is mindless is missing the point. I'm Leah Kelleher, and you've been listening to a tune, a podcast that dives into stories that stitch us closer to the world outside our window and help us reimagine what it means to exist on our planet. Special thanks to Jillian Osborne and Maria Hummel for sharing their thoughtful words on poetry and science. I couldn't have made this episode without them. Are you interested in helping support the production of a tune? Well, if you are, you can become a patron of the podcast on patreon.com slash attune. Again, that's patreon.com slash attune, A-T-T-U-N-E.